Chat with Traders is sponsored by Trade the Pool. Are concerns about limited buying power, insufficient capital, or fear of losing your own money preventing you from advancing your trading capabilities? Trade the Pool is an online stock trading prop firm that offers funding for stock traders. Demonstrate your skills, trade their capital, and keep your profits. You can engage in intraday trading and now swing trading on Trade the Pool with any U.S. stock or ETF. The procedure is straightforward. Pay an evaluation fee, successfully complete the evaluation, and get funded. Visit tradethepool.com forward slash chat to learn more. You've seen the headlines. Bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, they took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed this century. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash bonds podcast to get started. This podcast is sponsored by Public. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds. Markets, speculation, and risk. This is the Chat with Traders podcast, hosted by Aaron Fifield. What's going on, team? I trust you're doing good. Thank you so much for being here. Now, this week, we have our very first guest from Sweden. Just to keep things interesting, and I know there are quite a few traders who listen to the podcast there, so big shout out to Sweden. For this episode, I spoke with Michael Seeding. Now, Michael was a value investor who spent 15 years in the hedge fund business. And in 2009, he was awarded European Hedge Fund Manager of the Decade before retiring shortly after. During the interview, I asked Michael to share his three greatest lessons for traders and investors, how he spotted growth opportunities throughout his career. And I also asked him how his views on money have changed from when he first got started to where he is currently. And we talk about a lot more as well. Now, all of this was really great, but I have to say my favorite part of the conversation was probably the last 10 to 15 minutes where Michael talks about artificial intelligence and technology becoming one with humans. It's completely off the subject of trading, uh, but it was fascinating. My mind was blown and I'm sure yours will be too. It's, it's very full on and I don't say that lightly. Um, all right, guys, that's all for now. I'm Aaron Fifield, and here is Michael Seeding for Chat with Traders episode 68. Hey, Michael, welcome to the podcast. You're our very first guest from Sweden. How's it going, man? Uh, it's, it's good. Thanks. Uh, I'm happy to be on. Excellent. It's great to have you here and I appreciate you taking the time to speak with me. So thank you very much. Now, I know there's so much we could talk about. You're an incredibly interesting guy, but let's spend a little time on your earlier years. Uh, then from there, we'll go into how you wound up at a hedge fund. We'll talk about your investing approach and then we can take it from there. We might get into some discussion about um, technology and AI and maybe even um, the well-being aspect as well. I know you're, you're very big on all those subjects. So uh, how does that sound to you? A good plan? Yeah, sure. Go ahead. Great. So from doing a little homework, obviously, before we got on this call, it seems to me that you were always really motivated to succeed and make something of your life from a very young age. Where did this drive and entrepreneurial spirit come from? I, I really don't myself see that drive or, or that it was conscious in any way. Uh, but what, what really happened is that uh, we moved in from, from another city to, to a bigger city. And that kind of, uh, I guess, was the, um, the reason I got bullied as a little child. And therefore, I, I, I turned inward to, um, toward mathematics mainly because that was something that I, I, I could understand and, and control. And once into mathematics, uh, and also when I, when I turned 10, I got a computer uh, as a birthday present. Um, those, those two things together made me go deeper and deeper into uh, programming and, and just being, um, well, um, being kind of, kind of a, a lonely child, um, uh, 
doing programming and, and, and uh, using my whatever math uh, and, and, and English I, I, I could master uh, to um, to control the computer. So, and 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 then once I started uh, programming games, I well, it, it just came natural to um, to sell computing time uh, for for. Uh, Friends and siblings, even uh, to uh, to pay for um, for using my games that that I programmed myself. Um, so I I really have no idea where 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 the um, the actual idea came from. I mean, why would I know how to sell things or or, or that that was a good thing? More than well, I, I wanted the money and and I thought it natural that if, if it's my computer and my game and. Um, Somebody else wants the time on it, then uh, then I'll have to um, to charge for it. So that's that's not really a drive to succeed or or an entrepreneurial spirit. At, at least not the way the way I see it. It just it kind of just happened. Sure. Okay. So it was almost like a, a natural instinct. Um, and I did read that you were selling uh, computer games at the age of eleven, which I thought was awesome. So. Moving on from that, what areas did you study in college or university and and perhaps not only study, but what areas did you really excel in? I wasn't really interested in, in uh, economics or finance or, or anything like that. I actually started, uh, I actually uh, chose the college since I was very tired of school. I... I kind of got lost my interest in mathematics and uh, didn't want to go to to an engineering school or a technical technical school uh, and, and uh, just um, kind of a, a frenemy of mine suggested uh, this Stockholm School of Economics and um, and I thought what the hell if if I uh, if I go there and study it seems to be prestigious and at the same time it's just economics which should be very easy, it's very good for me to just um, um, walk through uh, with, with no real intention or ambition. Um, once there, I, I was really uh, a really odd guy. They called me the school hippie. I, 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 even, I, I tried to be uh, the odd guy out, I think, to, uh, because I expected everybody there to be like highbred and highbrow or whatever you call it and, and uh, wearing suits and everything. So, so I tried to be quite the opposite. And um, uh, after a while, I, I realized that I'm, I'm kind of getting good grades anyway. So perhaps I should just clean up and, 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 um, and try to make something of this. Um, and, and then I stumbled upon the, um, uh, the book American Psycho by Brett Easton Ellis. Uh, I just thought it was a, um, a weird and cool and, and like really gross book, but it still kind of talked to me. And so I, I showed it to my friends and they realized what he's doing, the American Psycho, and that is he's, he's, he has studied finance or at least he's working with finance. So now we know what, uh, what major we should take here. Um, I still didn't get it when, when, when it was put like that way, um, but I just uh, tied along and and, uh, and cho- chose finance as well. Um, and once doing that, I realized that this is actually will take some effort to um, uh, to succeed in. And and I've also by that time realized I could get like perfect grades uh, if I just ace a couple of the last the last courses. Um, so then I maybe for, for the first time in my life, really put an effort into school and, and made sure I, I got like um, an incredibly good score on, on the one uh, test that really, really mattered. And um, I was pretty happy when, when, when I actually made that because I, I didn't think I, I could. I really needed to get a, 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 an incredible score on that last test. Uh, and I did, and, and um, I, I majored in finance. Uh, I, I think my my degree is called uh, Master Master of Science in Business Administration and Financial Economics, uh, but it's it's actually so long ago that I can hardly remember. Right. Okay. So now that's really interesting to hear about how you went from having no interest in finance to 
you know, developing an interest um, over the years. So what was your first job actually working within the finance industry? Like where did you start out? I, I started applying for all the big management consultancy firms and investment banks uh, because they came to school and presented themselves and not least they gave us free food. So all the Goldman Sachs and Anderson Consulting, McKinsey companies, uh, etc. All of those were on my radar and I applied for all of those. Um, I kind of behaved a bit weirdly on the interviews. Um, I mean, I, I got... I got called to the interviews because of my, my grades and probably a, a pretty good cover letter. Um, but once on the interviews, uh, well, I typically passed maybe the, the, the first round of interviews, but then after a while the, the, they realized that this is kind of, a, kind of a pretty weird guy. I mean, if you've seen the big short and, and imagine Michael Burry going to an interview and, and behaving more or less as he did when he interviewed people for, for a position at his his firm, then, then you kind of get the gist of it. And um, anyway, in, in the end, I, um, uh, I applied for a, a broker's assistant position at a very small and, and uh, newly, newly started um, broker firm. Um, it's, uh, it was called uh, uh, Scandinavia Fund Commission. Um, and, and, well, I didn't really know what I was, was supposed to do there. And I, I, I'm not sure I knew that it, that it was kind of a, a lowly position. Um, but I just thought that, well, I, I, I probably should get a job. And there is a crisis here in Sweden between 1991 and 1994, Sweden's... Uh, economy was in complete tatters uh, we even had a like a like a, a big debt clock like for like greece should have had up on one of the, the most important squares in the middle of city in stockholm which basically said that look at this debt clock how the debt is just ticking up quickly towards doom for sweden there is no way around this that that was the general sentiment in uh, economics and and, and financial uh, all things financial in, in Sweden in 1994 when I applied for this job. So I really just needed a job. Um, and well, that was in, uh, I think it was April or May 1994. Uh, I got the job after quite a surprising uh, number of, of interviews with, with all the people at the firm, like the, the, five, the five people driving the firm. Um, then, then I got it and... I was more or less supposed to just get burgers for uh, uh, for those guys in the beginning and, and well, do some, well, just be a general resource at the firm. Um, and but but quite 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 soon they they realized that well he he, he probably should be more of an an, an analyst guy um, and and they just uh, put me to the task said try looking into these companies and and, and see what you think. Okay, so you went from being a broker uh, within the same firm to um, sort of going up a level to becoming an analyst. Was that all within the same firm? Oh, yeah, sure. So I started there in May 1994 and, and by October I, um, I released my first uh, research report. Okay, so what would be interesting to hear about is what was your actual role as an analyst within... Um, you know, you said you started out as a broker, um, as an analyst. That was you must have been with the hedge fund division of the company, um, if I've got that right. Um, what was your role as an analyst? Uh, are we talking now about like almost uh, the present time, where in, in where I was an analyst and and portfolio manager at at, at the hedge fund, or are we talking about uh, my well, what happened at at that first job? Um, oh, okay, sorry, I thought it was all within the same job, so. Um, how did you go on to working with the hedge fund? Maybe I should put it that way. Oh, all right. Uh, after a couple of years at that first job, I got headhunted to, uh, to another firm um, and then as a specialized uh, IT analyst. Uh, and at the second job, I, I stayed on as an IT analyst for uh, like six years. Um, and by the end of 1999 and beginning of 2000, I didn't really like what I was seeing in the market anymore. Uh, things were just being ridiculous for, for IT companies. Uh, I thought that you 
couldn't really have buy recommendations for anything, but at the same time, I was more or less forced to have at least some kind of neutral or buy recommendations, and I just couldn't stomach that. So, so I was about to quit the industry altogether. Uh, and uh, right there and then, uh, a friend of mine had had found this newly started hedge fund and uh, asked me if, if I was interested because they were interested in, in hiring two people specializing in IT and telecom companies. And, and my, my friend said that, well, I, I got a few people that I'm thinking of, but uh, I think you'll, you'll um, be the best suited for this job together with me. So um, I, I just presented myself to that firm and, and went through a couple of interviews and, and they thought that, well, that, this sounds good. You, you can start here. And that was in, um, in the beginning of, um, uh, of year um, uh, 2000. Um, better check, uh, there's one thing here. Uh, um, I didn't stay six years at that second firm. Uh, uh, there was more like four years. Okay, sure, sure. So what was your role at this this new hedge fund? What was your role like? What sort of things were you doing on a day-to-day basis? I visited um, companies, mainly uh, technology companies like uh, IT consultancies and, and software firms. So I, I visited their uh, top top management uh, people and um, uh, including um, chief financial economic, uh, economics and... and um, uh, oh, chief financial officers, that is, um, the, and the, the CEO, of course, and often some kind of technical guys as well, or or sales and, and, and marketing guys at those firms. And what I was trying to do was understand um, the actual business. So it wasn't it wasn't um, trying to get any any kind of like insider information or, or trying to um, uh, get numbers out of the companies in any way. It, it wasn't really about trying to um, trying to get at the at the P and L or balance sheet of the companies better than anybody else. It it was more about really understanding what are the business drivers of of this company. How are they making money now? Who are their competitors now? Uh, who are the competitors that maybe they don't even know about that that I could could realize will be their competitors? Uh, in what way are they fighting about wallet share at at client companies uh, with with even even with the uh, competitors from from another industry? So how how is this company fitting into? Well, mainly the economy and, and, and the industry in, in general. So, um, and, the, and the reason for, for going into such depth in understanding uh, companies and industries is for, um, for the things that happen suddenly in the future. So, so when there is a, um, um, a, a sudden shift or sudden change or, or somebody making an, a big acquisition or, or announcing a new big strategy, that's when all that knowledge uh, is, is is valuable. Uh, up until then, um, most companies and, and, and stocks they just keep keep trading in like an, an, a normal way, a normal pattern uh, where where you can't really add that much value as as an analyst or uh, or investor. Um, but it's when 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 things happen quickly. That you need to to know everything there is to know about a company to to realize okay what will happen now with this company so so I was visiting a lot of companies uh, reading through all the material they they put out I mean of course the quarterly reports and, and annual reports uh, all the um, you know, the press releases yeah yeah and and building models of course excellent. So I know that a big moment for you, you know, sort of in those early stages of your career was when you discovered internet tech companies were really undervalued. This could probably lead into somewhat of a a technical conversation, but could you share how you noticed this and and how you actually made money off discovering this? First, we have to realize that this was at, uh, at the, at the broker firm, um, 
both the first and the second broker firm. So this was not at the hedge fund. At the hedge fund, it was more more the other way around because the first thing we did there was shorting these companies. It's not that I had a, like a magical insight into things. Maybe it was just being naive. Um, but um, I I just realized that um, there that there was. Uh, different growth opportunity for for these tech companies compared to um, uh, to certain old industrial companies um, actually talking about this it, it I, I and and seeing myself like 15 20 years ago it, uh, I, I kind of realized that I I was very naive um, but I just applied uh, the valuation methods that I that brought with me from from college, uh, like discounted cash flow models and, and things like that, and and uh, putting growth numbers that that I thought were were reasonable. Um, I don't think that I did anything more than buy into, uh, more or less, drank the Kool Aid from from uh, from the tech companies that I were were talking to. Um, so uh, I, I can't really say that I, I realized things, uh, not in the same way as like Ray Kurzweil or, or Elon Musk realized things. Uh, for me, it was more a question of I, I was immersed in the world of technology and therefore I, I got these amazing growth stories all the time. Uh, and the reason I was immersed in it and the reason I, I exposed myself to all these stories is just that I'd been interested in, in computers and computing and the promises of technology all my life. So um, the, f- the first time I, I saw the internet live, uh, I was just blown away. I mean, what is this? It's like I, I can I can search for things, and whatever I type into 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 this little, little box here, there there already is a web web page for everything. And I, I realized this back in 1994, uh, and, and you can imagine how how like kind of small the World Wide Web was back then. And and still, I thought that it, it, there's almost nothing I can't type in here that and and, and not get an answer. Um, and I tried showing this for people and some were amazed and, and some just didn't get it. They, they, they thought they already had everything they, they needed uh, and, and had no interest at all in some kind of a hyped, hyped up yellow pages. Probably I was just like a, like a leaf in, in the technology wind, but I happened to be in the technology wind. Yeah, so this raises an interesting point. I mean, how important is it to be a creative thinker in the finance industry? And I know you often call yourself a contrarian. I mean, how important are these two things, uh, you know, within the finance industry? Depends on where you are in in the finance industry. I think mostly you're not supposed to be contrarian. You're not supposed to be creative either. It's better to do all the tried and tested things that everybody else is doing. And it's actually also mostly better to just run with the crowd because they are they are mostly mostly right. Even when they're wrong, they're it's it's mostly better to to run with the crowd. But then there are places where you where you need to be creative, and um, um, well, sometimes it has to do with with being creative as a, as a salesman, or more or less making up stories or. or uh, finding creative ways of, of uh, describing companies to make a client buy into them. Um, I don't really like, particularly like that part of the industry and, and I don't really like the corporate finance um, departments either where they have to be creative in, in ways of, of, of selling the companies to, um, um, to the general public or, or, or selling stories to, um, to make companies merge or, or a spin-off or whatever. Um, but in, when we're talking about analysts and portfolio managers in particularly regarding, uh, regarding stocks, I don't think creativity, creativity isn't really that important. I, I, I thought it was, 
when I when I was an IT analyst at Swedbank, uh, I thought that I was creative and visionary and could understand how could understand the potential of certain software companies. Um, but now, with hindsight, I I actually think I was wrong. I was just drinking their Kool Aid. Um, so so I'm I'm not really sure creativity is is, is um, is important. It can even be dangerous to um, uh, to try to be too creative. And then back, back to that thing about contrarian, I I kind of like the word independent better than contrarian because independent says that even when you run with the crowd and do everything the same as they do, uh, you can still keep your independent thinking and because that will be important for those. 10% of the time when you're supposed to to diverge from the crowd. And that is paramount. Yeah. Now that's that's a great answer, Michael. Um so you've described your approach, uh, maybe just jumping forward to the hedge fund days. You've described your approach as value investing, right? So for the most part, uh, guests that come on this podcast are reasonably active traders. So would you be able to explain for us that the goal of being a value investor? It mainly has to do with finding the right price for, for an asset. If you find the right price and start accumulating at that price or below that price, you will make a decent return in the future unless things change dramatically. That's more or less all of it. <laughs> okay, so how do you go about finding the right price like how do you know how do you analyze and evaluate a company like how do you know if it's either overbought or oversold like maybe if you could just give us a little bit of an overview from that aspect yeah i mean it's a question that can be either answered very shortly or very long-windedly and i did write a post quite some time back where i was aiming to just put down a couple of uh, well like a handful or maybe 10 points on how to do it and i ended up writing 50 pretty elaborate uh, step-by-step points on, on, on how to go about um, um, well, in that value investing more or less. And, and I, I still didn't really get to the part where, where you're supposed to, uh, how, do, how you really do it with, with a single stock company. Uh, I also tried doing this with um, trying to, I tried to write short and simple posts on, on valuing companies like Amazon or Walmart and, and well, there was some other company as well. And, and these posts as well turned out to be very long and, and, and detailed and um, including um, a, a lot of uh, Excel work. And I still really didn't get to the point of of the actual value investing and 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 what what it is you you really need to do to um, uh, to find the, the right value of a company. So uh, I'm I'm quite sure I I can't do it now either. If I if I couldn't do it in in many many hours of of trying to craft good posts on this, that's fine. What I'll do is I'll link to those posts that you mentioned there in the show notes. Uh, so if anyone wants to check those articles out, they can just go to chatwithtraders.com um, and find your episode and the links will be um, there. So I'll grab those links off, off you um, after we wrap up this interview. Yeah, I'll, I'll send them to you after this. Yeah, that'd be great. Now, one question I would like to ask you is how did you learn to trust your method? Because I think this is something that many traders and investors, of course, probably struggle with. I think... And I know a lot of people hate this answer, but I, I think I was lucky. I, I had the um, kind of the benefit of, of making things right a couple of times in the beginning, and and that gave me a, a confidence to to keep doing the same thing, even if um, even if it looked wrong for a couple of years sometimes. Um, and I also think that I have a very, uh, I'm very patient of nature, which means that I know that some people react when I say and, and, and uh, uh, that a certain investment swing I made or, or a, a certain investment uh, strategy was, was wrong for, for several years. 
but I never wavered anyway. Um, but I truly think that in the market, you, you, you can't expect to be right within just a couple of years um, because there are so many people involved and, and, and the, the future is it's it's unknowable um, and and um, um, like pinpointing uh, a, a, a trough or a peak uh, it just it's just theoretically impossible just looking back on on uh, any any stock chart or any company's history and it just proves that you can't be right within uh, short periods of time. So you have to be patient. You have to allow yourself to be wrong for, for very long periods of time and, and, and still trust your method. Uh, but, but back to your question, I, I just had the, the luck of being a, like a, a bullish IT analyst from the start of, well, even before Netscape and right up until the peak of the bubble. And then quit the industry. I mean, that was pure luck that I, that I quit at the exact right time. I actually uh, handed in my resignation more or less on, on, on the day that NASDAQ peaked. And, um, uh, and then joining a, a hedge fund where I met a lot of unbiased people who, who were also skeptical towards the, uh, the IT valuations. And we started shorting IT companies. Um, and when we made a lot of money uh, from that strategy in 2001 and 2002, uh, that, that must have kind of almost made physical changes in my brain that, that said that you, now you, you can trust yourself. You've, you've made these two incredible swings in your career, being long IT and short IT in the absolute perfect moments over like the last century. Um, and then more or less made two, two similar swings in uh, one, one up and one down, uh, even if the, the up part in 2004 until 2006 perhaps wasn't, wasn't that great. I, I think that the first two, two ones were, were um, more or less luck. But after that, I, I just got the confidence and, and the patience to... Um, uh, to stick stick with um, my calibration of markets, uh, but then again, uh, you have to realize that during 2012 until 2015, uh, I've been completely wrong. Um, since I, I still have the same calibration of what value and and growth and and, and uh, uh, how to look at the at the stock market and the economy. Uh, I still have the same same views at, as I had up until 2012, and that means that between 2012 and 2015, I've been too bearish, or maybe we'll see if I was or if I wasn't. <laughs> I like that, and I also like how you did mention that you know there was some aspect of luck, and also like how you mentioned uh, patience. Both are really great points there. So in your answer there, you mentioned that you. You know, as a value investor, there are times when you're going to be wrong and you have to be um, be able to ride out a long position for a long amount of time. How did you think about risk in that case? And were you always comfortable with the amount of risk you took? I was definitely comfortable with, with the amount of risk. We, I, I, did, I, I never took really big risks. Um, and at, at most... I put like five percent in a, in a, of, of the fund's value in a single stock, and uh, at most um, twenty twenty five percent in a single industry, and um, shared over like four or five or six different companies. So that, that didn't feel like like a lot of risk. Um, yeah, and since I always also had the the, the other partners um, uh, backing, I mean, we all we all pitched all the stories to each other and, and made sure that they, they well, uh, had some kind of a, uh, a standard. Um, it, it didn't really feel risky in, in, in the way that, that you might think. Sure. Okay. You know, that, that definitely makes sense. 
Now, Michael, you've got an ebook which is available on your website, and I'm going to link to it in the show notes also. Um, and in that ebook, it's it's pretty extensive, and you cover um, 50 lessons that you learned, um, you know, over your 15 years as a hedge fund manager. Would you be able to share with us maybe just your your top maybe two or three tips from that book? Maybe your favorite ones? Yeah, sure. I've I've touched upon one of them numerous times already, and that's just being patient. Uh, there, there's never any reason to rush into investing. If you feel rushed, you're probably late already. So uh, just be patient. I mean, uh, one, one way of thinking of this is that if you're 18 years old today, you've probably never owned a share anyway in your life and you'll still, you'll still do good. So you missed out 18 years of investing, but you'll still do good. And if you're newborn today, you, you probably will miss the next 18 years and and that's fine as well. Opportunities always cycle back. So it's better to wait for a good opportunity than, than to, to rush in. So study, wait, then pounce. That, that's the absolutely most important lesson of all, to, to just be patient. And, and that's also a thing that, that you as an individual investor has as an advantage versus institutional investors because they often can't wait they have to be fully invested and they have a lot of clients asking what they're doing with their money so so they they can't wait they can't wait but you can so wait uh, and then never go all in you always need to keep some powder dry uh, both in up markets and in down markets uh, well it's, it's more important when when things are crashing because then you can always add on to your positions um, but just just never never put it all on red because um, the, the future really is unknowable and if you put all the eggs in the same basket you, you, you're almost asking for an elephant to, to step on it um, there, and there really there's never any reason to go all in um, I, I'm not sure exactly how to elaborate more on that but, but just never go all in you should seek opposite counsel uh, at all times. Whenever you're in, enamored with your investments, um, or well, I, at least you've done your investment, uh, try to 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 um, to find opposite information. Any kind of information that hurts hearing, that's the one you should listen to. Okay. Okay. So don't get too caught up in your own opinion, your own. Um, bias, I guess you could say. Is that right? Yeah, because you you are we as, as people we are biased to find supportive information. Anything we hear that that supports our case, it it feels good. You feel almost happy and exhilarated whenever you hear somebody say, "Yeah, and it's very high growth in that industry." And I heard he's buying, and well, that's the things you should not listen to. You should should well look for anybody having a sell recommendation instead and talk to him and, and listen listen carefully. Yeah, I like that. And I spoke with a trader uh, just the other day um, on another interview and he mentioned that, you know, a good systems developer, obviously talking about a slightly different subject here, but a good systems developer will try to find ways to break his system instead of trying to find ways to actually, um, ways to support it and prove that it's right. Um, he'll do everything he can to try and break it and find the flaws in it. So I think um, I think that's a really valid point. Um, mm. Thanks for sharing that, Michael. Now, many people who know of you already uh, will know that you were awarded the European Hedge Fund Manager of the Decade in 2009. Now, from what I understand, it was shortly after you received that award, um, which is very significant, so well done. Um, that you decided to retire from being a hedge fund manager. Why did you decide to retire? Um, yeah, well, um, I'd been thinking about quitting the finance industry since uh, since 2000. Um, but after that award, um, and, and let's say maybe uh, about a year or two after that award, I I, I thought, for one, that I, I had enough money. So there was no, no real reason to just get more, um, except for just being in the rat race. You, you think you always need more and you always think that, well, if I got this, 
this much now I can live with a certain a certain standard. But then if I if I get a partner or kids, well, then I need twice as much or four four times as much. Um, uh, so partly that was what kept pushing me forward, just doing one more year all the time. Um, but mainly the reason to quit was to develop other sides of myself. I, I was more and more feeling that the only thing the only thing I do is stare at numbers. I sit in a chair all day, I stare at numbers and, and I go over the, the same quarterly earnings year after year after year for the same companies more or less. Um, I, it, I can almost physically feel my, my brain shrinking that I, uh, uh, and also when, when, when meeting new people, it, it was as if I, the only thing I could talk about was, was finance. Uh, and I didn't like that about myself. Uh, and, and also once I kind of just stepped outside myself for a little while and little while and, and, and observed myself, I, I didn't really recognize myself from, from before the things that, that made me, made me smile or laugh when, when I was younger. Um, so, so I thought that what I really need to do is just, I just need to quit this, open up a lot of space and, and time for myself and, uh, and just see what happens. Are you a developing or seasoned day trader who trades the U.S. markets? Is the only thing stopping you from getting to the next level is having enough capital to trade? Trade the Pool is a unique online stock trading prop firm that funds stock traders worldwide. Not having to risk your own capital can help you focus on other things like making better decisions on your trades. There's no PDT rules to worry about. You got more than 12,000 stocks and ETFs to trade, long or short, and professional tools at your side. How you get funded is you show them your skills through a straightforward evaluation process. Once you pass the evaluation, you get funded and trade with their pool of money and split the profits. Don't let the lack of buying power, capital, or fear of losing your own money prevent you from taking your trading to the next level. Visit tradethepool.com slash chat to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. And that leads me into a question that I really wanted to ask you about. Um, I think now's a good time to do that. So how have your views on money changed from when you first entered finance to like where you are now and at that point we actually quit the hedge fund? How have your views on money changed? Mm. Um, if, we, if you think back to, to the story about me programming and, and selling computer games as, uh, at 11, uh, it seems I, I had a natural greed and, and I, I really loved money. I loved counting money when I was little, which is, which is weird as well, I think. Um, and, and once I started getting some, some, some decent bonuses and, and dividends, uh, it, was a, it, was a, it was a great feeling having a lot of money. Um, but I, I, I never really analyzed why it felt good. It probably just felt good because I hadn't had any before. Um, but I didn't really seem to to use the money for 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 much good. Not even not even for um, uh, f- for well, the one thing you you really can use money for it's it's actually quitting, and 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 getting more leisure time because time is is important. Um, but it it's very easy to just get get caught up in this this game of of getting more and more money without really understanding why or what you're supposed to do with it. It's, it's like, like, a, like a rat in an experiment, just pushing a button and getting an electrical shock into the pleasure center of the brain. brain. But, but they don't really have any, any, any aim or ambition or, or reason for doing it. Um, anyway, so, so once I got a lot of money, I, I thought that I wanted sports cars and, 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 and things like that. Uh, so, so I started buying them and... And that felt good as well. Uh, 
up until after a uh, well decent number of years with with sports cars, I I realized that I, I'm I'm not really I'm not really enjoying this one. It's it's just a hassle keeping the battery fresh, um, finding places to park it without getting 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 key scratches, which I which I did get, um, things like that, and um, and I also realized that of course I'm I'm I kind of like the sight of it when I when I walk up to it, but once I'm in the car, it's it's more or less just a hassle again. I have to drive it. I can't see it. Um, doesn't really provide me any any extra value if, if I if I want to get anywhere it's it's much easier to just take the the bus or walk um, so th- there was no pleasure at all in, in in having an expensive sports car uh, and so I I sold that one uh, never bought any new car and and um, w- once I had gone through that process, I, I had the, the kind of tool to, to analyze the rest of my life. And, and that's when I more or less completely realized that I'm not interested in, in, in things you can buy. Um, so it, it's, it's, it's really hard analyzing yourself. And it's, it's hard even now imagining that I, that I had a different view on, on money and riches before as compared to now. It, it, it still it's, it, it feels like I'm the same person. Uh, well, that's, that's how the brain is, um, uh, is supposed to work as well. I mean, it's, it's just keeping a narrative to make me happy anyway. So I realized that you have to, to go into yourself and and find what it's what actually is making you happy rather than than uh, going with with kind of the flow of society of what's what other people say should make you happy yeah that's a really interesting answer i like it i like it so i guess where are you focusing your time and efforts today i know you're drawn to advances in technology are there any specific areas of tech that you're interested in? I think artificial intelligence is the most exciting area of all. Not that I can can make a contribution or, or do anything uh, other than just uh, watch, but uh, I think that's, uh, that's tremendously interesting. It, it, uh, it's going to affect all of our lives. Yeah, and I agree with you on that one. It is very interesting. And the way you see it, what role will... AI play in the near future like what impact will it have have on our lives you know maybe over the next 10 or 20 years I think over the next 10 or 20 years more than half of of all kinds of work will be done by by AIs um, from all the types of, of transportation like if you're a truck driver or a taxi driver or any kind of, of, of driver you'll, you will be out of work in the coming 20 years, maybe not 10, but somewhere between 10 and 20 years, I think it will become illegal for people to, um, uh, to drive any kind of vehicle because it's, it's, it's dangerous for themselves and people around them. Um, and you'll have a, a lot of um, um, work like, like being um, a paralegal or, or a, uh, somebody doing doing taxes um uh, i don't know but but anything that you can even remotely conceive of being automated will be automated if you just take a list of professions i I think you can more or less scratch most of them out because they will be taking over by ais yeah and i mean some people freak out at the mention of ai and I mean, some of those things you just mentioned there could be somewhat concerning to a lot of people. Do you think people should be worried about this type of technology? No, not really, because I think it's a kind of a binary situation. Either um, there will be a malevolent AI that, that will just erase us and, and that will happen extremely quickly, instantly, more or less, uh, once it happens. It will not be like in, in the Terminator movies where it's like a drawn out war. It will just, they will just do it. It's like 
um, imagine a, a, a mosquito landing on your, on your forearm. You are the AI and, and that's humanity. It's, it's, it's not more of a, a challenge than, than that once, once it happens. Um, so there's no real reason worrying about what, what will happen between the AI and, and, uh, and humanity. Um, but then again, in, in terms of the next, let's say, 10 to 25 years, um, things could get kind of challenging for anybody who, who doesn't uh, keep up with technology. Because during that period, what, what's important is, is being able to, um, to use the simple and narrow AIs and, and all the kinds of tools that technology will bring. It will be important to, to use that to enhance yourself, to, uh, to keep up and to stay relevant. So that's the only challenge, but I don't think it's, it, it's not any, that's not anything to be worried about as long as you keep an, an agile mind and, and are open to change. Okay, so Connor just mentioned that it's nothing to really be too worried about, but you also kind of hinted that it's possible that it might just wipe out the whole human race. It, or did I misunderstand that? Uh, no, no, that is com, com, exactly right. But if it wanted to, if, if that happens, there's nothing we can do about it. Well, I mean, we could, we could stop developing this type of technology, couldn't we? Uh, no, I don't think that's possible. Uh, I mean, you've got 10 billion people tinkering <laughs> everywhere. Um, somebody will do it. So it, it's, it's better to, I think, to, to accelerate the, the development and, and uh, try, well, the ones who are involved in this, that they, they try to make it the best way they can. And, and, and hopefully... Uh, uh, a benevolent AI will be the first one, and that will keep uh, all the other ones in check. But we can, we can, we can never know. It's, 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 it's completely unknowable. Just, just make this thought experiment. If you got an, if you got a big ape, and then, then you got a human. I mean, you think there's a big difference in, in uh, intelligence. But then, if you look into humanity, and, and, and you've got like a uh, the the village fool and then you have mr aaron fifield and and then you have einstein um but imagine okay einstein is probably smarter than you are imagine somebody who's twice as smart as einstein and then you imagine somebody who's like a trillion times as smart as einstein uh an intelligence of of, of that order of size it's it's just completely unknowable for us to 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 uh, to fathom what 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 that thing could do i mean even somebody who's just twice as smart as einstein and einstein thought of things 100 years ago that we're still um, completely awed by um so there there's there's really well there, i think there will there will be very strong generalized ais in the order of sizes of thousands and trillions and billions of, of, uh, of an ordinary human. And, um, well, well, we can just hope that they think that we are interesting pets uh, or that we merge with them in some kind of, a, well, you know, the Borgs in, um, in Star Trek. So when, when you're referring to AIs here, you're talking about AI in the form of a robot or in the form of something else? I think something else is a more um, practical way of looking at it. Uh, I don't think they need to take a, a particular physical form, but at the same time, in order to to um, interact with the world, it has to control various various machines and, and, and things. Um, but it's it's not really relevant to think of like a uh, Boston Dynamic big dog or, 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 or some, some uh, uh, humanoid walking around and, and, and being the AI. I mean, the AI will be in redundant servers spread out probably in a, in a, a ring round, round the earth rather than, than down on the ground once we get to that point. And 
in the beginning it will just be redundant servers spread out all over the planet. So it's it won't be it won't be centralized and staying in just in one place, but it will be just a very powerful software program that can also control all physical things uh, connected to to the net. So the Internet of Things more or less makes sure that um, this AI will have control of every physical product there is. Okay, okay. It's interesting. It's a really interesting subject. I do find it fascinating um, and maybe a little bit frightening, but no, it's uh, it's awesome. We could probably keep going on this for quite some time, but uh, there's one other subject I'd like to bring up with you and uh, that's the health and well-being aspect. I know this is extremely important to you. Um, so why is it? I mean, it might be a silly question, but why is it so important to you? Because, I mean, you know, us as traders, often we do neglect physical exercise. You know, we're stuck behind computer screens for long hours uh, some days. Why is, why is physical um, exercise so important in your life? As always, um, the answer is, is kind of the opposite of what, <laughs> it's that it's not important for me. It, it just is. Um, and, and actually up until I was 13 or 14, I thought that a, a modern human, and by modern I meant anybody owning a computer, which everybody should, I thought back then, um, did not need physical strength at all. I thought it was a silly, like caveman style. You, you do not need physical exercise. Um, and... And then I saw Rocky IV, the movie with um, Sylvester Stallone and, and uh, Dolph Lundgren. And I thought, hmm, a modern human needs muscles <laughs> to, in order to get women. Um, so I started working out when I was 14 because of that movie. Um, not, nothing more than that. Uh, and then I just kept on. It's, it's almost like, like my whole career. Uh, I, I, just, I just can't stop myself. So I, I started doing martial arts and I, and I lifted weights. And once I, I started working, I, I couldn't um, keep up with the hours anymore in, 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 in martial arts. Uh, so I just had to, to uh, uh, stick to, to weightlifting. And then uh, during a couple of years, uh, I even stopped that completely in order to, and to focus 100% on, on, on my, my job because I thought, that's what you do when you are working. You don't have time for anything else. I even broke up with my girlfriend the, the, on day one when I started working. Uh, I mean, I still loved her, but I, I, I just told her, this is the way it is. When, once you get into finance, you, you, you don't have a life. You, you work, nothing else. Um, uh, but then, then uh, in 1996, when I... When I switched um, switched job places um, I started working out again because I I just felt I just felt weak to my bone I I realized that it it's it can't be good not keeping in shape I really need to keep in shape uh, and, and at that time also the opportunity opened up to to work a little less and I, I realized that you have to have some kind of a work-life balance um, and it's it's really after that after 1996 that I, that I started reading things about health and and I also saw the connection between the body and the brain how the the brain really is is well, thinking is evolved from analyzing motion both yours and 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 and, and prey motion uh, so, so thinking is moving and moving is thinking. So st staying, staying healthy, well, it, it, you kind of phrase it as why is it important for a trader or an analyst to be healthy? Well, maybe it isn't, but it's, it's important for you as a person anyway. Uh, living is being healthy. Uh, and, and there is a, a, a much more important world out there outside of your, of, of your trading chair. Uh, so it's, it, it's not really about being, staying, staying alert or, or keeping your, um, well, keeping your brain fit by keeping your body fit and, and thereby 
being able to trade better. That, that's, that's really not what I'm getting at. I'm, I'm more getting at you will be a better person in, uh, in general if you work out as well. Okay, that's a great answer. That's a really great answer. Um, now, one last question before we wrap things up here. Um, and I don't even know if I've actually phrased this question right because I've got to be completely honest, I don't actually understand these terms. But can you share with us insight to the singularity and transhumanist belief or outlook that you have on life? Yeah, sure. Uh, the singularity is the technological singularity. That's a point in time where technology advances in such a fast pace. It's actually the acceleration is accelerating um, in, in such a, a, a fast pace that an unenhanced human cannot keep up. So if you just think back through, through history and, and look at various techn technological milestones, uh, they, they, uh, they keep happening faster and faster. And so some people maybe think that it's, it's interesting to see how the World Wide Web really started taking off in, in um, well, let's say 1995 when, when Netscape was IPO'd and then you have the, the iPhone in, in 2007 and uh, Google and Facebook and, 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 and those things. And there the, the will be more and more important technological milestones happening faster and faster. So at, at some point in time, you'll see breakthroughs like, like, like Google or, or, or the iPhone coming along, not every 10 years, but every five years, and then every two years, and then every one year. And you can just keep going with this process. And sooner or later, you'll have technological breakthroughs throughs once a second, and then once every hundredth of a second. And once you get to that point, you realize that there is no way anybody can keep up. Uh, and, the, and the way we get to this point, of course, is, is that more and more stronger and stronger artificial intelligences are what, what will be doing the research. And they will use the outcomes of the research as their own tools for improving on themselves and improving the research and coming up with the next point, the next milestone. So this is, will not really be humans doing it, but, but machines. Um, and then we'll, they will use whatever they come up with to, to improve on their own technology and thereby also improving on, on the speed that things are happening. Um, so at, at the point where it's just impossible for a human to keep up with, with, with all the new things happening. That's the technological singularity. And beyond that point, there just isn't any, well, well we, we just can't analyze what happens beyond that point. It's, it's just unfathomable for us. It's impossible to understand. But the way to kind of keep up as long as possible is being a transhumanist. That is merging as best as possible with technology. So, we have already started with having smartphones in our pockets and pretty soon they won't be smartphones, they will be contact lenses with, with augmented reality and, and all the intelligence baked into these wireless contact lenses. Um, and, and after that we'll, we'll just merge more and more with technology, probably infuse our our blood, blood with uh, respiracides, um, technological blood, uh, red blood cells that are like a million times more effective than, than the current ones. So you could easily just keep your breath for four hours while doing a full sprint up a mountain. That could be coming handy, come in handy. Um, and uh, that's, that's physical, but you could do the same thing with your brain where you replace one brain cell, well, you can put in a, an artificial brain cell in parallel, one at a time. And then when you feel comfortable, start disting uh, extinguishing the, the original brain cells and then make more place for more artificial brain cells and then maybe be, be a, a million or a billion times smarter than you are today. Um, since the, the signaling in, in, uh, in electronics is like a million times faster than, than the signaling in, in uh, organical um, 
uh, organical processes. So even without a better architecture, you should be at least able to think a million times uh, faster with, with the same architecture. Um, so th that's, that's the singularity and, and transhumanism in, in kind of a one small uh, package. Wow, that's, uh, that's fascinating and, and really full on. Um, no, that was, that was great. Okay, Michael, well, let's, let's wind this down. Um, one last question I have, and that is where can listeners go to find out more about you? I have this um, uh, website. Uh, it's called michaelseeding.com. So that's my, my name.com simply. Uh, I'm, I'm sure you have somewhere to, uh, to put that in. Uh, it's, it's, well, the spelling isn't, isn't that easy for, for a, a non-Swede. Yeah, I'll be sure to include that in the show notes. So guys, you'll be able to find that at chatwithtraders.com. Okay, Michael, well, thank you so much for doing this. It was a really great conversation. I'm pleased we could set this up. So yeah, thank you once again for taking the time. I really do appreciate it. Yeah, sure. Uh, it was uh, really good to be on. You've reached the end of this episode of Chat with Traders. But rest assured, there are more episodes loaded with real market insight and zero hype on the way soon. So to stay updated with each great new release, subscribe to the podcast and iTunes. And we'd love it if you'd leave a rating and review. We'll catch you next time on Chat with Traders. Chat with Traders.